How many of you are excited about Easter season this year? Let's try that again. How many of you are excited about the resurrection of Jesus? So this, uh, this morning we're going to begin the sermon series that will take us towards um, our Easter celebration on Easter Sunday. We had a wonderful, wonderful candlelight Ash Wednesday service at City Church Central this past Wednesday evening. And it was just incredibly profound. It was very peaceful and quiet. And it was candlelight because the church had no power whatsoever. So it kind of took us back to sort of the first century church. But it was such a wonderful time of beginning to move towards the resurrection of Christ. And many of you know that Ash Wednesday is that time where we begin to consider again our sinfulness and the incredible love of Jesus and what he has done for us. So this Sunday morning, we're going to have someone begin or kick off the Easter sermon series, someone that's very familiar to you. So would you please welcome with me my son, Peter Hartwig, as he comes to share this morning's message. Did somebody just awe? <laughs> I know I'm not a big guy, but I didn't think I... <laughs> Good morning. Um, many of you know most of my family. My beloved mother, who's basically a hug. But she can also be a little conniving because she's Italian. When my, when my little sister was growing up, she had what normal Americans call a pacifier, or a binky, but we called it a doopy, because we're odd. And my mom, in a stroke of maternal genius, convinced her that it was a cultural norm to give your doopy to the Easter bunny on Easter in exchange for an Easter basket like the way you give Santa cookies or the tooth fairy teeth. If she gave her her pacifier, or if she gave the Easter Bunny her pacifier, the Easter Bunny would bring her a great big basket. Now my sister is very intelligent, but my mom is smarter. <laughs> so my little sister, a couple weeks before Easter, we go to Fashion Square Mall, back by Belk, where the Easter Bunny, which is terrifying, as we all know, with his big creepy eyes and his big creepy paws is sitting back there in his big creepy throne. And my little sister, confident as a peacock, walks up to the Easter Bunny, hands it her slobbering, saliva-dripping doobie, <laughs> kind of does this like, I've done something face, walks back in line. And the poor guy in the Easter Bunny suit, you know, is like, Janet, what is this? You know. It was an awkward start to Easter. As I suggest, Ash Wednesday is also. Like, we're supposed to go into this season of Jesus being resurrected, and it's the center of our faith, and it's this whole big thing. But we start off with a comparatively dark holiday. I don't know if anybody was raised maybe Catholic or Episcopalian, but in other Christian traditions, on Ash Wednesday, hump day, leave work, go to church, and the priest or the bishop will grab your face in his or her hands and like smudge ash on it and then look you straight in the eyes and say, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. 
happy Wednesday, you know? Just <laughs> somebody else puts their your hands on your face and you're going to die one day. I mean, that's how we start this thing off. That's a bit of an awkward start to the happiest holiday of the year, right? It's sort of like, it's going to go great after this. But we'd like to give you a day, or maybe 40, to contemplate your mortality. <clears throat> and then after this, you'll give up, you know, I don't know, football or chocolate or something. And uh, for the next 40 days, after you've been reminded that you'll die, you get rid of your favorite things, and then at the end of it, if you make it to the finish line, also Jesus was resurrected. And then you go back to having your uh, chocolate and your football or something, and you slog through the year. I think a lot of people really register the Easter season like that, that you have one day of darkness, 40 days of annoyance, one day to go, oh, it's over, and then you get back to normal life. But I want to suggest that, in fact, we should get just a little bit excited about Easter, or in fact, maybe more than a little bit excited about Easter. So this is basically a pump-up speech. I would like to suggest that we should get excited about Easter, because Easter is God's answer to the fundamental human problem that plagues all of us. And the fundamental human problem that plagues all of us, I suggest, is the gruesome twosome of sin and death. So when I was 15 or so, Christmas morning, my little sister hands me a box, Allie. Hands me a present. Same girl that gave the doopy to the Easter Bunny. And I open it up Christmas morning to, disco to discover like a, like a four-cup Pyrex bowl. Entirely unexplained. And I'm kind of staring at it like it's an asteroid that's recently fallen through the roof. Like just this odd piece, like Christmas morning, she gave me a Pyrex bowl. You know, what is this, Father of the Bride? I'm just... Mm. And uh, I'm, you know, obviously disappointed. And Allie goes, "It's because you make hot chocolate." And now the present that I didn't care about and I thought was kind of weird is like so unimaginably adorable because I know the logic behind it. I think maybe we're not so excited about Jesus' resurrection because we might not get like the logic behind it. So this is what I want to bring out a little bit: is the logic behind Jesus' resurrection, the way in which it actually fits as the answer to the fundamental human problem of sin and death, with the hope that in, what, like 38 days from now, we would actually be excited to go to church Easter morning and then excited to live Easter the next 325 days of the year. That's the goal. So, would you turn with me to Genesis 2, which is page 2 in the Bibles we provide. Man, that was easy. So Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it kind of gives us the, uh, si the situation for why things are the way they are, so to speak, and we're going to take a look more or less at the first crime scene. So God creates Adam out of the dust, very exciting event, and then God gives Adam a bit of advice. So in uh, chapter, or sorry, in verse 15, God says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree you want, but you just can't eat this one tree. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. 
can eat any tree. He could eat any tree he wanted except for this one tree. And if he ate it, he would die. So, a little later in the story, this snake slithers up to his wife. And if you jump to chapter 3, you get that story. And it sounds like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent goes, you won't die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course, she eats the fruit and she gives it to her husband and both of their eyes are opened and they realize that they're naked. But they don't die. Isn't that the most curious thing? Kind of looks like God wasn't telling the truth for a second. So you have one of two options. Either God's not telling the truth or there's more to death than bodily death. So God goes on later in chapter 3, and he says this. Chapter, uh, verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. I think this is God's way of explaining what death is, I think. God says, if you eat the fruit, you'll die. They eat the fruit and they don't bodily die, but then God shows up in the garden and goes, now life is going to be hard. Relationships will be broken. Relationships between humanity and the earth between humanity and itself. Every imaginable relation breaks down and life becomes difficult. Life is going to be lived by the sweat of your brow. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. I think the author of Genesis is trying to wake us up to this idea that death is more than just death. That, in fact, a lot of human life is theologically, you might say, living dead. So, this is my shorthand definition for sin and death. I did not get it from anybody. It could be entirely wrong. You can reject it if you feel so inclined. But I would say this. Sin is the human propensity to ruin things. Just break stuff. You know, like relationships and recipes and reservoirs and car doors, which I've done a number of times in my life. But um, it's just the propensity to ruin stuff. And death is the state of being ruined. It's just entropy. Everything is going downwards and to the right on the graph of life when sin and death are in the picture. Um, kids are not good people. Did you know that? 
Amen. <laughs> so St. Augustine, really big deal, in his memoirs talks about being a little kid. And the moment he realizes that he's a sinful being is when he climbs into his neighbor's yard and starts taking pears off the guy's tree and just throwing them into the street just to see him smash. And he goes on this long rant about how I loved the destruction of it and it was just evil for the sake of evil. But he's really just a five-year-old in a tree, like chucking fruit into the road. Kids aren't good people. When I was um, in second grade at Woodbrook Elementary School, we went to Carter's Mountain, and this bugged me for a long time. This was some unconfessed sin for like a decade of my life. We went to Carter's Mountain, and I went into the orchard, and I took apples off the tree, and I took two bites of them, and then I threw them down the mountain because I enjoyed not paying for them and then watching them go to waste. I just did. I don't know. I'm a bad guy. I have my problems. You have your problems too, though. Kids aren't good people. From the time we're little, we just grab some, bite it, chuck it, watch it, break it, ruin it, just watch it go up in flames. I mean, we love that. I've lit so many things on fire in my life. Even now, if I get like trash mail from people, like $10 million prepaid credit card, I'll just burn it. I'll go outside the kitchen, drives my mom nuts. Anyway, when I was in um, sixth grade, this is just gonna become a confession of all my junk. When I was in sixth grade, there was this other Peter in my class, and he was smarter than me, and that really kind of bugged me, but I was just a little bit cooler than him. Maybe. And um, he, he was very cultured and stuff. So I took wasabi and I told him it was green tea gelato. Now, the real joke here <laughs> is that Peter was the kind of sixth grader, as was I, that would know what green tea gelato was, right? And then he ate it and he cried. And I had to, oh, I'm a terrible person. Or like last week, I was um, cooking some geese with some friend. I, have fr I really have friends, I do, I swear. And we were cooking geese together, we decided to have a goose roast, and my friend Carly was like, you have to thaw the meat in cold water, but I thought that was stupid because that doesn't make any sense because you don't thaw things out in the cold. So when she wasn't looking, I put hot water into the pot because I knew that she would blame it on Patrick because that's the kind of thing he would do. And then she goes back to the bowl and she's like, there's hot water in here, Patrick! And she goes off on him. I kind of laugh in the corner, but then later I felt bad about it because Patrick got in trouble with Carly. But I just did it mostly to see her yell at him. I mean, we just do this kind of thing. We ruin things just because we can, so we ruin them. And death is the state of things being ruined. Like, Okay, so a little while ago, I was out to dinner with a family from City Church, and they have a little kid. She's sassy, and I appreciate it, but not this time. And um, at the time, I was dating somebody, and she said, do you have a girlfriend? And I said, yes. And I said, would you like to see a photo of her? Because that's what you do when you're proud of your pretty girlfriend. And she said, yes. And so I showed her a photo, and she said, she's very pretty. And I said, yes, she is. And then she looks at me right in my baby blue eyes, and she goes, she deserves a better man. <laughs> How does this kid know? <laughs> she deserves a better man, Mark. And everybody laughed at the table, right? Like everybody thought it was hilarious. Um, but I have since broken up with that person. Okay, she broke up with me. But, um, <laughs> And now that event that used to be funny kind of like takes a little bite out of my soul a little bit. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like funny at the time, but it's curious the ways in which we treat one another and we just, we just 
take a piece of each other, I mean, just a little bit, and it's funny and everybody laughs, but we do just kind of steal a little bit from... Henry David Thoreau spent 1845 to 1847 on Walden Pond, and he writes a number of reflections, and this is something he wrote there. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed, even what are called the games and amusements of humankind. Which is to say that under the veneer of a society that's doing incredibly well, people are dying. Society looks fun and safe and bright, but we're dying inside. So one of my favorite authors talks about this moment that evidently you have when you're 39. You're 39 years old, you go to take a bath, and you lay down in the bathtub, and you look at the ceiling as the water cruelly reflects on the top of your bathroom, and you, it slowly dawns on you that your life has not gone the way that you thought your life would go. Now, nobody else has made the decisions. You've had, like, all the freedom in the world. You got to pick who to marry and where to go to school and where to study. And... But a string of decisions you made has brought you to a place that you did not want to be. Your life is barely recognizable as the life that you had set out for yourself, but nobody else is to blame. It's just the human propensity to ruin things, like even ourselves. I've never been there because I'm not 39, but I'm assuming because it's in a best-selling book that somebody's got to feel it. I don't know, maybe it happens when you wake up one morning and you're having coffee by yourself, or, but you just become aware of like the incredible disappointment that life often brings, and nobody is to blame but you. I think it's real. I think it's death, that life is hard and relationships are broken, even our relationships with ourselves. There is a veneer where things look like they're okay on the outside, but you know that you're not doing well on the inside. When I was in high school and when I was in college, I had two very close-knit groups of friends sort of break down, just largely unexplained. We'd spend like every day together, and then all of a sudden nobody wanted to talk to each other anymore. And so over the last couple of years, I've like taken people to lunch and talked about them. And you know the curious thing? Everybody in the group thought that the group hated them. Every single person. Happened time and time again. I just, I, I didn't think anybody liked me anymore. You know, I just thought. How is it that nine people spend every day together and none of them think anybody else likes them? I think it's like death. Like societal death. Like our social lives break down and our relationships get broken and nobody said anything about it. Like, nobody in the group showed up to everybody else and goes, do you guys like me anymore? They just kind of backed out. We carry around these, like, unshared secrets and memories of pain that we think nobody else will understand. And if we shared them, it would put us decidedly outside the category of people worth being friends with. Or, or maybe worse, they would find our memories, like, hilariously insignificant. And then, of course, there's, like, real death physical, literal death. And the 20th century taught us our remarkable propensity to pass death off from one to another. So um, J.R. Oppenheimer was uh, one of the scientists that created the atomic bomb. And in uh, July 16, 1945, Operation Trinity, they uh, detonated like, oh, there he is. What a dashing figure. They detonated a trial run of the bomb, Operation Trinity. 
And Oppenheimer said, um, when I watched the bomb go off, I just remember, he had studied Sanskrit. He taught himself Sanskrit, and he had read the Hindu scriptures. And he said, this, this memory jumped into my head, something I had once read in the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu scripture. It's this moment where one of the Hindu gods shows himself in all his terrible glory. And the god says, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oppenheimer says, I watched my bomb go off, and I whispered to myself, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. We have an incredible capacity to wipe one another literally, physically off the state of the earth, face of the earth. I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, I should have just stayed home today. <laughs> Not only is this 22-year-old little genius, me, 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 telling me what I already know, but I'm not sure this is making me feel any better. And I just, I just, just bear with me just a little longer. All of this is to say that I think the Bible's conviction that sin leads to death invariably checks out. Just this thought that humanity has the propensity to ruin things, and so we do. Our relationships, ourselves, the things we buy, we break hearts, we break our own hearts. We, it's true, the Bible's uncomfortable conviction that we ruin things is true. And so if you go to an Ash Wednesday service, and somebody grabs your face and goes, tells you you're gonna die, maybe once a year you should hear that uncomfortable truth. So what are we supposed to do at the bottom of the pit where we're physically gonna die we're emotionally dead. We live in relationships of death. I asked myself that question, and the scripture came to mind. Romans 7, 24, where Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? And then the second line, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No real explanation, just a little bit of excitement. Who will save me from this body of death? Thank God for Jesus. There's this, it was just like one day, Passover, 30 AD, one guy walks out of one grave, and the whole axis of the world shifts. It's just, it's like incredibly modest. You could miss it from like 100 yards away. But the first Easter, one person, one morning, walks out of one grave, and it all shifts. He was crucified on a Roman cross. You know, I think you know who I'm talking about. He lived 30 years of this incredible life where God did incredible things through him and through his ministry. He preached freedom to the captives and he healed the sick. He put life back where it was supposed to be. He went to the places where people were sick and he made them whole. And he went to people who were lonely and he gave them a family. He does that for 30 years and he's killed for it and on the other side of it, he comes out of the grave. The same Jesus that knows how to radically change somebody's life with a thought or a touch or a word or a meal is the same Jesus that comes out of the grave. By the Spirit of God, he walks out of the grave. And the axis of all of human history, the grammar of death, the graph of death shifts. Just like that. One guy, one grave. And the world spins on its axis in a way that nobody could possibly have predicted was possible. 
I love the modesty of that. So when the resurrected Jesus comes out of the grave, he doesn't come out like guns blazing, like, look who is back, baby! He just goes back to his friends who don't even recognize him. The whole axis of the world shifts, and it teaches us that humility can actually change the world. You ever hear someone say, life is so fragile? You know, like, human life is incredibly fragile? Not Jesus's. One guy gets killed, he comes back from the grave, and all of a sudden, human life in him, the life in Christ, is no longer a fragile life. It's no longer a life that you have to grip and hold for yourself. It's not the life where you made all the decisions and you're in a place you don't want to be anymore. Now life is about living into Jesus, the same Jesus that healed people, the same Jesus that defeated death, is now the Jesus in which, in which we can live life, and he's humble, and he's kind, and he's generous, and even when he wins, he doesn't go guns blazing. He just wants to go back and see his friends. Are you a friend of Jesus? Just a question. Would you turn with me very briefly to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19? It's page 933 in the Bibles we provide. Here's the moment where St. Paul tries to explain this thought to the Corinthian church, this thought that because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, in him we also have hope of life. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. P.S., so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, just again, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is trying to make clear the cohesiveness, the assurance that there is life in Jesus, even bodily life, even eternal life. He's so sure of it. He says that people, they don't die. They fall asleep. If you're in Christ, you don't die. You fall asleep. That's how life-giving Jesus is in Paul's mind. That's also, might I add, why I think I'm a Christian. Because my experience of Jesus has been the experience that Jesus gives life where there's death. So when I was in middle school, like all good people, I hated myself. And I would have rather been anybody else because I was like a whole 127 pounds of artsy-fartsy at a school where the coolest kid could run the mile the fastest, you know? And I thought I was just like profoundly unlovable. But when I got into high school, I discovered two things. One of them was theology, the science where people who have lived hundreds of years before of you take the time and effort to tell you in intellectually respectful ways that Jesus loves you and wants to be your friend, basically all theology does. The other thing I discovered was a group of 12 seniors. To my knowledge, only one of them was a Christian. But for some reason or another, this group of 12 seniors like adopted me. 
So we would go to two for Tuesdays, get chicken wings on Tuesdays. And they weren't like crazy people. They were like solid people, like people who knew how to take care of each other. And they went to insane places like NYU Gallatin and Yale. And one of them was the president of her class at Richmond. Another one is acting on ABC now. But for some reason or another, they adopted me and they would like take me around, which is incomprehensible to me at this time because I thought nobody liked me. The other person they brought around was my friend Kevin, who's here in the front row. Kevin's my best friend in the world. We've done brilliantly stupid things together over the last near decade. And when these 12 seniors graduated, it was like me and Kevin. That's about all we had left. Kevin's um, grandfather, his mom's dad, miraculously survived World War II. So, so he went into the war where J.R. Oppenheimer had become deaf. Uh, in July 1944, he went over with Patton. He was the next wave of soldiers after D-Day. And uh, he, he ended up as a lieutenant in the 2nd Infantry U.S. Army in the Arden Forest. One, uh, about a week before Christmas, he ends up in a barn surrounded by Nazi tanks in charge of his platoon trying to figure out if they should surrender. So Kevin's grandfather, William Henry Crane, also known as Hank, walked into the doorframe to like take a view of the land and a shell hit the doorframe and uh, a chunk of wood went into his eye and he lost his eye. That was the point at which they decided to surrender and he was taken in an ambulance to an officer's hospital. And in the ambulance, there was also a wounded Nazi officer who kept kicking him in the head every time they went over a bump, just to cause him pain. Well, he ends up in this <clears throat> uh, officer's hospital next to the officer. The Nazi who's been kicking him in the head and Kevin's grandfather, Hank, are in bed next to each other. And um, the officer wouldn't let him get any medical attention, so he lost the eye. He didn't get first aid, he wouldn't let food or water be brought to him for three days. Eventually, he was eating snow off the windowsill to stay alive. Christmas Eve, 1944, a group of German carolers come through the hospital and they're singing hymns. And they start singing, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. Anybody listen to Garrison Keeler? Alle schläft einsam wacht, nur das Tranta hock. And his grandfather joins in, Heilige Paar, holde Knabe im lockigen Haar. And in tears, the officer next to him rolls over and goes, Du bist ein Christian? Christenlicht, you're a Christian, Christian. So that day, the officer turned around. He got him put into a full body cast so that his wounds would look more severe, so that he was sent to a better ward for better treatment. And when he was sent to a prisoner of war camp, they actually gave him medical attention. By this point in time, a telegraph had reached the States to Mrs. Crane that said, your husband is MIA, presumed dead. A couple weeks after Christmas, she gets another telegraph that says, we've located your husband. He's in Switzerland in a prisoner of war camp where the Red Cross can get to him. And the, the telegraph came with a brochure for the prisoner of war camp, you know, like two nights stay, queen bed. And um, a man who was missing in action, presumed dead because of silent night, comes back to the States in May of 45. He was liberated by the Americans in May of 45 and was back stateside by July. Jesus brings people back from the dead. Did you know that? Jesus brought me back from the dead socially. He brought 
William Henry Crane back from the dead. So every time I thank Jesus for Kevin, I'm thanking Jesus for a miracle in 2009, when I got to high school, for a miracle in 1945, when that man escaped the Nazis, for a miracle 2,000 years ago, when Jesus made clear that Jesus is about giving life to people who are living dead. I also think of Diane Ewing's story, who talked about years of living in unnoticed death until she sat down with someone who also understood the resurrection life of Christ. And Diane is now a person who lives. Jesus brings people back from the dead. This is why, as Christians, we believe in eternal bodily life. Because whatever happened to Jesus, God's also going to do to us. And if he can make me alive now, I see no reason why he also can't make me alive then. I'd like to invite the worship team up at this time. So I've been told that um, sermons have to end with practical application, which as an academic drives me nuts. But I think this is the practical application God might have for us this morning. Who can get excited about Easter? Like, who can get excited about resurrected life? Who can get excited about a God who brings his son back from the grave and is ready to rescue us from our fundamental problem if we only believe in him? This is something that my favorite New Testament author writes, or my favorite New Testament scholar writes. Is it any wonder that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our churches? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? I think this Easter season, if today we appreciate the fundamental problem of sin and death, tomorrow we can start appreciating the eternal gift of life in Christ. And I hope that over the next 40 days, each day we wake up, we get just a little bit more excited so that by the end, when we come here on Easter, we can celebrate with full hearts and loud voices that Jesus brings people back from the dead. Would you pray with me and stand? Jesus, we, um, we believe that you're alive even now. And that because you're alive even now, you can hear our prayers. Jesus, that you see us where we're at, even in this body of death. Spirit of God, I pray that you would draw near to us this morning if we are people who don't know you. If we're somebody who recognizes that we are living a life of death and we would rather just live. Spirit, would you draw near to that person? Jesus, would you draw near to that person? For those of us who have been following you for years, but who still feel like we're stuck in death, Jesus, I pray that you would send your liberating power to us through a friend or a word or a thought or a prayer. Jesus, draw near to us. Jesus, I pray for hot hearts and cool heads that this next Easter season can proclaim what a joyful thing it is to live the life that you established for us. Thank you for what you did in your life, in your death, 
and in your resurrection. Jesus, become more real to us every day, we pray. Amen. Give 
Could we take a moment as we're getting ready to conclude our service? If we can take a moment and close our eyes and open our hearts. There is a problem. And it's twofold. It's two-pronged. It's sin and death. It's a problem. None of us can avoid it. Neither one of us can avoid either one. But in Jesus, both are taken care of through his resurrection from the dead. And so as we stand at the beginning of our Easter celebration, we remember this, that sin and death are real. But Jesus Christ has overcome them through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you have stepped into this world that was filled and is filled with sin and death. But we thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you did not leave us alone to fend for ourselves. But you have sent your Son into this world and that each and every one of us can have the joy and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if God has raised Jesus from the dead, we shall be raised also. Thank you for resurrection life. In this resurrection life, we do not have to die to get it, but we can have it right now through faith in him, Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death. So Jesus, thank you for this message this morning. Help us to walk in it and through it with full assurance and faith that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. God, thank you for who you are to us. May it be said of City Church that come Easter Sunday morning, we will rejoice, we will throw our hats in the air, and we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for our time together. I pray that you would cover us in ways that only you can. And I pray for those of us that are here this morning, may we ponder afresh and anew the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. God, now I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would keep us. I pray that you would cause your face to shine upon us and that you would give us peace. As we conclude our time, if you would like prayer, our prayer team will be off to my right, your left. If you would like prayer personally, you would write, like someone to pray for you or to pray with you, I encourage you to come forward for a time of prayer. I also want to repeat myself what I said during the announcements for those of you that maybe came in later. We will not be having service next Sunday morning. The Google Corporation has leased the entire campus, and so we will be unable to meet here but there will be an email that I will send out with a video devotional that will move us closer to Easter. 
and there will be life groups gathering together, and we've encouraged all of the City Church family to begin to connect with each other for next Sunday morning because we will not be having service. But again, there will be an email sent out that will have a devotional that will carry us through next Sunday morning. Now again, I pray that God would bless us and keep us. Before you exit, will you remain just for a moment and let's sing this worship song, Give Me Jesus, together. And let's sing it, and when your heart is complete, you can slip out quietly and then chat with each other in the foyer. Let's sing it again with all of our hearts, Give Me Jesus. throne you came to us and set your heart upon the cross we'll never know the sacrifice you made for all our sin and all our shame you took the nails and took our place no one else could do you have done Death would die, you rose 
We sing your praise, sing your praise forever. And lift your name, we lift your name, Jesus over all. We'll sing your praise, we'll sing your praise, we sing your praise forever. And lift your name, and lift your name.
presence is all I seek, it's all I want, and all I seek, and without it, without it, there's no meaning. Your presence is the air I breathe, the song Oh